In 2016, the Bar of Ireland held a series of lectures celebrating the role of barristers and the courts at key junctures in the history of our state. The lectures included an examination of pivotal trials and some important legal personalities that figured in Ireland's struggle for independence. Under the guidance of the then Bar Council Chair, now Mr Justice David Barneville of the High Court, a range of legal luminaries presented at Green Street Courthouse near Smithfield Market here in Dublin 7. Today, we are delighted to bring these informative and engaging lectures to you in a different format and for a wider audience. In this episode, the Mamtrasla murders delivered by Michael L. O'Higgins, Senior Counsel, David Barneville introduces. You're very welcome to the fifth of the uh, lectures in our uh, Green Street Court uh, lecture series. Um, I'm delighted on your behalf to uh, welcome uh, Michael O'Higgins, Senior Counsel, to talk to us this evening on the Mam Trasna murders. Um, Michael uh, requires no introduction to this audience, apart from being an experienced Senior Counsel, former journalist, he's also a, a highly ac critically acclaimed best-selling author of the recently published Snapshots novel. Um, I want to thank Michael for agreeing to give this lecture, and I think we will all uh, appreciate it. Michael is going to transport us this evening uh, to the shores of Loch Mask on the border of Galway and Mayo uh, in the late 19th century and talk to us about the Mam Trasta murder. So please welcome Michael. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, in 1882, Mam Trasna, um, literally meaning across the mountain, was one of the most inaccessible parts of Ireland. Um, it was surrounded on three sides by mountainous cliffs and a deep inlet from Loch Mask running into the valley uh, was where the village was situate. To say it was something of a tight-knit community would be a great understatement. The family that was slaughtered in their beds were Joyce's. The three witnesses against the murder group were all Joyce's. And of the murder group, which consisted of 10 people, five of them were Joyce's, four of them were Casey's, and the one person who wasn't a Joyce or a Casey was married to a Casey. So almost everyone in this story, without exception, is a Joyce or a Casey. It was a time of huge poverty. There were apparently within the townland 250 homes, although I understand there's literally nothing left there if you were to walk it today. It was a time when the land war was in full flight. There had been 60 murders that year and only a few months previously, a bailiff and his grandson uh, collecting rents had been murdered and their, their bodies were covered in 24 foot of water in Loch Mask. And only then, after the landlord, Lord Ordolan, had put up a significant reward. On Thursday night, August the 17th, um, 1882, a group of men broke into the home of John Joyce. 
John Joyce was a local hard man. Um, he had a lot of enemies. He apparently was a, a strong sheep stealer, and sheep was a living here. And he was a tough man. And the party that broke into his house didn't stay long. There was sounds of shots being fired and sticks were being carried by some of the party. The neighbour who went in the following morning found John Joyce on the ground, dead. Uh, three women, Margaret, Margaret and Bridget, his wife, mother and daughter, respect, respectively, were in bed, dead. Uh, bludgeoned to the extent that their faces were unrecognisable. Bridget had a tuft of hair in her hand. There were two boys in the house. One was shot in the stomach and head. Uh, he died a very painful death later in the day. And Patsy Joyce, who was aged 11, he, he was the only person who survived. The village gathered outside and they didn't get help for a number of hours. It's not clear why. The reason for the murder has never been established. Uh, it may have been superstition about going into a house where dead people were. It may have been that there was a suspicion that there was a secret society involved. But in any event, it was a number of hours before medical help was summoned. Um, word spread quickly, and women came from far and wide, dressed in red uh, petticoats and shawls, and smoking clay pipes, and set up a keening and a wailing uh, in a wake. Two days later, um, Anthony Joyce, his brother Johnny, and his son Paddy went to the police, and they told a remarkable story. They lived a couple of miles away, and they said that they had seen six men wandering about in the dead of night, and they decided to follow them. And the six went into a house and came out, swelled to ten, and they followed them, at least one of them barefoot, across bog and rough stone and rivers to Mount Trasna, and from behind bushes about 50 feet from the house, uh, saw the men gather and saw three of them go inside. They named all 10 people whom they recognized. They were not able to name uh, any of the men who had gone into the house. The police immediately spirited the three Joyces away to uh, a magistrate in Kong who took a deposition from them. And with commendable efficiency, the police arrested the 10 named people overnight. They brought them to the local magistrate's court. They were given the opportunity of confronting their accusers. They had no legal representation. Uh, they were warned that anything they said in the course of the confrontation could be used against them later if, they were, if there was a trial. And um, some of the men did uh, question the accusers and put it to them that it was unlikely that they would have known them and so forth. 
But they were very robust in their denials and said, no, they were quite clear on their identification. Um, the 10 were remanded uh, into custody. And at that point, the three Joyces were taken away and they were described the route that they had wa um, um, walked. And they staged a reconstruction at the house. And uh, it was noted that you could not hear gunfire from outside. And many thought that enhanced the credibility of the Joyces. At this point, a very critical person entered the scene. A man called George Bolton, who was the local state solicitor from County Tipperary, and he was, by all accounts, a very formidable individual. He'd not only prosecuted, but virtually, it would appear, solved a lot of murders. And uh, he himself was a big landlord. He had 5,000 acres, some of it a very lush land. Um, he, he would uh, go to the locusts. Uh, he would be invariably accompanied by a large number of burly policemen. He would interview suspects personally, and he had a reputation for being a bully. The men appeared before court. Of course, none of them spoke English, and an interpreter, an RUC, RIC man, was appointed. The men were represented by Henry Concannon, a respected Protestant solicitor from Tum. It's clear from the uh, reading the books at the time, the Mamtrasna people were, I suppose, like people still in Connemara, very good litigators. And uh, they knew all the solicitors. And uh, it would appear the reason that Henry Concannon was uh, nominated was because the, the man who would have been expected to do that type of case was already retained in the Huddy case. That was the bailiff and the grandson uh, who had been murdered. Uh, people had been arrested and charged for that. Um, Henry couldn't speak Irish. The first thing he did was write to the Lord Lieutenant, asking could he go and visit his clients in Kilmain in prison. And he received a rather terse reply, pointing out that under prison rules, he wasn't entitled to see them uh, together. And he received that permission just a few weeks before the trial. As things stood, the state did have three witnesses describing the murder party, if that's the correct description, going to the house. But they didn't have the names of anyone who'd gone into the house. And it was a common design case, so that wasn't, I suppose, of itself fatal. But I suppose, as any prosecutor would acknowledge, it's always very useful to have actual perpetrators uh, when you're prosecuting a case like that. As the trial approached, uh, Anthony Philbin, the only one who wasn't a Casey or a Joyce, um, requested a visit in jail from George Bolton. Um, he made a statement setting out his involvement. The statement was apparently unsatisfactory. And the following day, a second statement was provided. And he named the three men who had gone into the house. And his brother-in-law, Thomas Casey, also met George Bolton. Uh, Mr. Bolton made it clear that unless his evidence chimed with Anthony Philbin, the state had no interest in his testimony. And on the morning of the trial, nine of the prisoners traveled together. 
Philbin went down separately and uh, Casey asked to see George Bolton again. Uh, it was repeated that they only wanted evidence which was in agreement with Philbin's. Uh, he was given 20 minutes to make up his mind. Uh, he then made a statement naming the same three men that uh, had uh, been named by Philbin. The Lord Lieutenant had exercised his powers under the Prevention of Crimes Act to transfer the case to Dublin, to this courthouse, using powers quite similar to Section 43 of the Offences Against the State Act, uh, save for the fact that the cases were, important distinction, were tried by juries, but they were transferred here in circumstances where there was an apprehension that local juries might be biased. This case attracted enormous interest. It was I, what probably would have been characterised then as penny dreadful type interest, but it had attracted media nationally and internationally because the idea that people could be slain in their beds uh, in such a brutal manner uh, was like we often see every now and again, every year, 18 months in the criminal courts, some court catches the public imagination. And this one did that. The court was packed. The Crown was represented by the Attorney General, Mr. Johnson MP. Um, there were two silks, and Mr. James Murphy QC, and he was clearly the, the star of the show. Uh, was described or is described in, in Charlotte Waldron's excellent book on Mamtrasna murders as a brilliant advocate, waspish, merciless, clear-minded and clear-spoken. And a newspaper profile highlighted his sagacity and masterly skill in cross-examination and his eloquent appeals to the intelligence and conscience of jurors, leaving them with no alternative but to violate their oaths or convict the prisoners. A third counsel for the Crown was Mr. Peter O'Brien QC, later to become Lord Chief Justice. Um, he was known rather uncharitably in some circles as Peter the Packer O'Brien on account of his reputation for packing juries with Protestants. Um, George Orm Malley Esquire QC and John R. Stritch were the counsel for the accused. Malley was a Catholic, but one who dropped the O from his name. Um, he was a landlord and writer of many academic texts on topics as diverse as the Settled Land Acts and the Grand Jury System, of which he disapproved. He was almost 40 years at the bar, and there's no reason to think that he didn't give uh, the accused anything other than a competent defence. The first case up was Patrick Joyce. He was described in media reports as a thick-set man of middle height. And though dressed in a way that was coarse and shabby, he was not exactly associated with the conventional type of Western peasant. The defense had been informed two days previously, uh, that was a Saturday, that Philbin was going to be a witness for the state. They applied for sight of his statement. They were unaware at this point that he'd been joined by Thomas Casey. Uh, the application was refused. They then sought an adjournment, 
They said the trial should be transferred back to Galway, where the jury could walk the land and see how improbable the account of the Joyce's was, particularly walking it barefoot. The two approvers, as the accomplices were known, uh, had only come to light and more time was needed. Both applications were peremptorily refused. Anthony Joyce was the first witness to give evidence, and he gave evidence in accordance with his statement describing the men, how they collected, how they traveled, how they presented at the house, how they watched them break into the house, and how they had fled. Uh, his brother Johnny and nephew Patrick, they gave similar evidence. There was a bit of bad blood between Paddy and Johnny that had a fight at a dance previously, and there was some other history which was highlighted. Mary Joyce, who was the daughter, confirmed that the movements of the men in and out of the house. Anthony Philbin, the first of the two approvers um, to give evidence, caused a stir. He dressed well, spoke passable English, and with a mixture of phrases like, I gather, it appears to me, um, was a rather impressive uh, individual. One paper said he looked like a man in fairly comfortable circumstances or a big farmer. He described confirming the account of the Joyce's of the trip to Mam Trasna. He, of course, denied any knowledge that a murder would take place. The most he would admit to was that there was a boy who was doing harm, was to be visited, and by implication he'd have to be dealt with. He named the three men who entered the house as Pat Joyce, Pat Casey, and Miles Joyce. And the naming of the murderers apparently induced an awed hush in the courthouse. Tom Casey took the stand. He too denied any knowledge that a murder was to take place. Initially, his account dovetailed with the other witnesses. But out of nowhere, he added in two malefactors uh, uh, putting the party at an increase of two and five men going into the house rather than three. The next witness was the young boy, Patsy Joyce, and he was an important witness potentially because he had told the neighbour who came into the house that the men had come in with blackened faces and that they wore bonines, which were white jackets whereas the witnesses had said everyone was dressed in very dark clothes. So potentially he had important evidence. But first he had to be tested for compliments. And the court, insofar as where I am standing now, would appear to be the same then uh, as it is today. But in front of where I am now, there was a very, very large table and surrounded on all four, four corners of the table, it was a long rectangular table, was a phalanx of bewigged lawyers. And just to my left here, there was a chair where the witness sat and uh, was visible to the jury. And um, you can imagine for an 11-year-old boy, it must have been something of an awesome sight. Anyway, he was brought through the competency. Um, he was an item of great curiosity. The marks of the wounds on his head were still there. Um, 
he was questioned on his knowledge of the catechism and whether he'd gone to chapel and vague questions about prayers. Uh, he was asked had he said them. He said he hadn't. He said he knew what a lie was, but did not appreciate the consequences of telling them. The judge very peremptorily declined to receive his evidence. The counsel for the defence then addressed the jury on behalf, on the behalf of his client. He made all the obvious points. His, his wife wasn't a competent witness. Um, he highlighted the animus between the families, the improbability of the story, the poor line of sight from the bushes, and he castigated the approvers as people trying to save their own necks. James Murphy then closed for the prosecution. And uh, he, he, it would appear, gave a very powerful closing speech. Uh, disagreed with the defence assessment of the Joyce's as amateur detectives, but rather men, thank God, impelled, forcibly impelled, and driven by the feelings of humanity to come forward and to pose, and oppose to the circumstances that they providentially witnessed. He responded to the defence suggestion that they were not in a position to call witnesses to prove where Mr. Casey was on the night with a rhetorical flourish. I'll ask you now with what terrible force that can be applied in order to show the truth of the story told by the Joyce's. The three independent witnesses, he said, had selected 10 in number, different areas, five miles off, some close to themselves, and for every single one they added to their number, the possibilities multiplied of bringing a witness in that could place that person somewhere else, and it had never happened. There was reference to secret societies and a cult of a hellish organization that spread such disgrace and disaster over this country. The big inconsistency with Mr. Casey, who'd introduced the two new uh, people into it out of nowhere was seized upon as something showing there was no conspiracy. There was no organised story and he sought to turn it into a virtue. When he sat down, uh, the people in the gallery broke into a loud and sustained burst of applause. The jury retired to consider their verdict after the judge's charge. They were out Eight minutes. Guilty. At this point, the Crown formally entered a nolle prosequi in respect of the Queen versus Anthony Philbin and Thomas Casey. The judge put on his black cap and pronounced <coughs> sentence. And the language is, by modern terms, very florid. It's not for me now. Possibly it would be useless indeed to attempt to awaken you to a sense of the position in which your enormous criminality has placed you. Mercy in this world you have none to expect, which you shall have what you did not permit to your poor victims, time to endeavour to seek the forgiveness of God, whom you have so grievously offended. He then went on, it only remains for me now to pronounce the sentence, the dreadful sentence of the law, and dreadful as your crime has been. And here the judge began to cry. And he said, I'm not ashamed to say that I feel the position of a man who is sentencing his fellow man to death. And he went on to pronounce in that formal way, 
to be taken from whence you came, to be taken to the common place of execution within the walls of the prison to which you shall then be confined, and that you shall be there and then hanged by the neck until you are dead, and that your body be buried within the precincts of the conviction in which you shall be at last confined after your conviction, and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. After a short interval, the second prisoner, Pat Casey, was put forward for trial. The legal teams were the same. The evidence was the same. Casey called his mother and a relative to provide an alibi. Uh, it apparently went down very badly. Uh, he, they, they claimed that he had been home and suffering colic and that he'd spent the night walking up and down drinking hot milk. And Murphy... Uh, in his closing, uh, apparently made um, quite a meal of attacking it and undermining it. And it certainly played well, as when he sat down, there was more sustained applause from the gallery. The judge appeared to be galvanizing as the trials proceeded. Uh, he had done a very up-the-middle charge in the first trial, but uh, of the independent witnesses, he said, if what they're telling was untrue or wrongly fastening the guilt on men that they did not see on that dreadful night at all, more accomplished actors never appeared on any stage. And the jury were out this time longer, 11 minutes. And uh, the judge then observed, if ever there was a case in a combined sense of horror at the crime and the necessity of duty, which ought to steel a man's nerves against emotion, that case is the present. You have no mercy to expect in this world. I ask you to turn to that God whose dictates and precepts you have so terribly disobeyed. The Freeman's Journal then reported what occurred then. Words are inadequate to reproduce the stillness of the moments, the anxious, puzzled aspect, and the pitiable demeanour of the condemned man. Apparently without the full knowledge of the judge's forcible language of condemnation, in casting his eyes around the building to search out for the interpreter so that he might hear in Irish what he professed not to have understood in English, the date of his execution. Such a scene would probably raise a moment, a momentary feeling of pity for the vilest criminal who could be placed in a dock. The court adjourned for 15 minutes before taking up the next case. Miles Joyce was thick-set, heavily bearded, low-sized man of 45, married with five children. Miles Joyce is the reason why this lecture is occurring today. What takes this case out from being a, simply, a simple penny-dreadful story. In his locality, People thought of Miles as something of a chieftain, patriarchal, both in appearance and manner. He did not speak a single word of English, and except for a moment or two at the beginning and end of his trial, he did not have an interpreter. Miles was charged with battering to death his own first cousin, Margaret Joyce, who was a teenager. There was an application for an adjournment, and the language of it, I must say, is very modern. There was reference to the very hostile media coverage. There was reference to the fact that in the few minutes earlier, 
the judge of necessity. Uh, again, the lawyer's language of diplomacy um, had necessarily referred to the fact that the evidence which was laid before the jury against him, this when he was sentencing the previous prisoner, was cogent and conclusive. And it was noted that those comments had been passed in the presence of the new jury panel. And um, the, the application was opposed by the Attorney General, who said that anyone who was present could not doubt for a moment that the prisoners had so far received the fairest and most impartial trial. The judge refused the application, saying that to accede to an adjournment, adjournment would be introducing, quote, a very dangerous principle if I acceded to this application for postponement on grounds so vague and insubstantial. The first trial had commenced on a Monday. The third was commencing at lunchtime on Friday. The juries had been accommodated in great comfort in the Gresham Hotel. Nonetheless, the foreman requested the judge to sit as late as possible that night so they could finish the case on a Saturday and uh, avoid being locked up for the weekend on a Sunday. The evidence proceeded more or less as it had in the previous two cases. Some inconsistencies were highlighted. Miles um, Joyce had attended John Joyce's wake. And the significance of this, the defence said, was that superstition dictated that a person who'd been involved in the killing would never have dared to do such a thing. But James Murphy had an answer for that. And in his address to the jury, he said, tell that to distant ages, old gossips and so forth, but don't tell it to us who know the history of criminals and crime. A feature of the case was the frequency with which jurors became involved in what effectively amounted to cross-examination. And the judge in his charge uh, could not resist paying tribute to a jury man by the name of Pym, a frequent interrupter. The judge noted it was an answer to a question asked by him that had transpired. Here was a man accused of murdering his first cousin and accused of so doing by another three first cousins. It followed, therefore, if Anthony Joyce was inventing his evidence, he was doing so for the purposes of hanging his own first cousin. The jury retired at exactly 3 p.m. They returned within six minutes. The Freeman's Journal reported what happened then. Anyone who witnessed what happened next in that courtroom never forgot it. A change then it came upon the prisoner. He showed a little fear touched the bar of the dock, looking forward with a fervent expression and attitude of invocation, and gave tongue to what can only be considered as a prayer. The hitherto silent and placid miles suddenly broke into a tirade of rapid and fluent Gaelic, all of which was accompanied by the most violent but expressive gestures and bodily movements. His eyes blazed, his face reddened, and yet withal there was no anger or resentment there but surprise, total incomprehension, a passionate desire to communicate to God, to the court, to the world, his solemn affirmation of innocence. The interpreter was asked to translate. He says that by God and the Blessed Virgin above him that he'd no dealings with it any more than a person who was never born, 
that against everyone for the past 20 years he never did any harm, and if he did, that he may never go to heaven, that on the night of the murder he slept in bed with his wife and there's no knowledge about it whatsoever. The judge was unmoved and went to pronounce sentence in terms that there was little point in saying anything to somebody like him who had been convicted of a crime of this as he did not assume the possibility of weight and authority that he could in any way uh, influence his thinking. Um, he went on to say that he'd never heard a piece of evidence so emphatic that made a greater impression than that which was elicited by the juror. This was lunchtime Saturday. Three men had been convicted and sentenced to death. They were to be hanged on December the 15th, less than a month away. It was a tumultuous week in every sense of the word. However, the drama was only beginning. Prosecution counsel approached defence counsel, and again in a development which I think will be understood by practitioners or recognised by practitioners, um, with a proposal. If the remaining five people pleaded guilty, they would recommend that the death sentence would be commuted. If they wanted to take their chances, well, they knew what the alternative was. The solicitor headed straight to Kilmainham Jail and for the first time was allowed to see the prisoners together. Four bluntly refused to plead guilty to a crime they hadn't committed. The fifth man, through tears, indicated he was present at the house that night. He, he named the three leaders of the gang who had inspired it and were all still at large. Miles Joyce was not there, he said, and neither were the other four accused beside him. Um, the solicitor went and spoke to his counsel and then went to meet Mr. Bolton. Uh, Bolton was pretty disinterested in the new development and expressed disappointment that um, the deal wasn't accepted and said he would go and discuss his own counsel, what, what the next uh, uh, day would hold. This was a Sunday going into Monday. And the following morning, Concanon was told the state would refuse to accept Michael Casey's plea of guilty on its own. And when the solicitor pressed the new information, it was dismissed uh, as the implausible ravings of an old man. The solicitor went back to the prison. The four remained resolute. Sorry, this is still on the Sunday, I beg your pardon. They said they would never plead guilty. So the trial of Michael Casey opened the following morning. The solicitor, by now desperate, had already telegraphed a, a father, Michael McHugh, a local priest, to come and talk to the men. He arrived up here early on the Tuesday morning and in the cells just immediately below where, where the bar, the dock is there, uh, spoke with the prisoners for a number of hours and they all came up in court and they all changed their plea and uh, pleaded guilty to murder. The judge emphasised that in law they were one and the same, but uh, uh, endorsed any possibility that the executive would commute the death sentence to uh, life imprisonment. The public was denighted. The papers, even papers like the United Irishman, 
endorsed not just the result, but the trial, and noted the public was satisfied that the disgusting butchery had been avenged upon convincing evidence by juries comparatively fairly chosen. The decision whether or not to commute the death sentence rested with John Points, Earl Spencer, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the Queen's Viceroy, and the present Earl Spencer, Lady Diana's brother, is a direct descendant from this Earl Spencer. Spencer had travelled over to Dublin on the 5th of May on the eve of his new appointment. He just entered the Viceregal Lodge the next day when he noticed, while looking out the window, what he took to be a drunken brawl some distance away. It took a few seconds before he realised he was witnessing the brutal hacking to death of two of his closest assistants. The Phoenix Park murders, as the act came to be known, had hardened his view both of Ireland and violent crime. His boast was that while he was in office, every crime in Ireland would receive due punishment. Henry Concannon wrote on behalf of the men seeking clemency. Spencer knew the case intimately. He'd actually visited John Joyce's house in the aftermath of the murders. It was 22 by 10, two rooms, no windows, a fire with a, a, an open um, a chimney breast, uh, a concrete floor. And it was shared by the family with their cattle who were such valuable assets that they would have been kept indoors. And he pronounced it as a place that in England would only be suitable for pigs. Queen Victoria had written to him expressing a wish that all eight men should be hanged. Spencer was far more interested in ascertaining the actual part taken by the men, their state of knowledge, under whose orders they've been acting, rather than exercising clemency on any compassionate ground. He felt very strongly they were every bit as guilty as those who actually inflicted the blows. He was reassured to hear that the trial judges advices were just that and not binding on him. And in the very, very end, two days before the men were due to be hanged, he reluctantly agreed to commute the sentences, but only on the basis that he decided that the manner in which the pleas had been received may well have created an expectation and that acting on that inducement, it would be unfair now to deny them the benefit of it. William Marmond, the hangman, had arrived in Galway. The scaffolding was an awesome sight. Eight trapdoors situate below eight steel rings set to simultaneously open on the pull of a single lever. The three condemned men were in the hospital wing. The food was better. They had beds to sleep on. Uh, a parish priest, Father Grieven, and a curate, Father Newell, visited them every day. And one of the local Mercy Sisters, who lived just across the water, attended upon them. Joyce and Casey confessed to Father Grieven that they had been involved, but that Miles Joyce had not been. Father Grieven urged the men to make a formal admission in the hope it would save Miles Joyce. The two men made statements akin to dying declarations. They said that seven persons would be, were present. They said Thomas Casey, the approver, who'd got immunity, had done the shooting. Two other men had a hammer. They said Anthony Philbin hadn't been present. Michael Casey was also present, but the four men who'd pleaded guilty were not. 
They refused to name the three other persons who were involved. The statements were dispatched by the governor. Meanwhile, Miles was seeing his relatives on the eve of the execution and saying, if there's a God in heaven, there's no rope in Galway fit to hang me. At 12.19 a.m. on December the 15th, a telegraph was received at Galway Post Office from the Lord Lieutenant. It read, having considered statements, I am unable to alter my decision. The law must take its course. It was well after 2 a.m. when the governor came and broke the news to Miles Joyce. The following account of the hangings is based on contemporary news reports and is taken from Father Jarlath Waldron's excellent book, Mantrasna, The Murders and the Mystery. At 8.15 a.m. a door opened and Governor Mason emerged. The first to appear was Miles Joyce. When he saw the press man, he started shouting. He was pinioned, his two arms lashed together by leather straps behind his back. The men had been called at six o'clock, gone to confession and attended mass in the prison chapel and were offered breakfast, which they declined. The pinioning done personally by Mar Marwood had taken place in their own cells after they had received the last rites. On the scaffold, Miles turned towards the reporters and prison officials gathered below and in a loud, firm voice harangued them. He again proclaimed his innocence, made reference to his five children, who would soon be orphans, and took comfort from the fact that he had a priest with them. As Marwood approached Miles to place the rope around his neck, Miles resisted him. The priest father, Grieven, still saying the litany of the saints, moved over to Miles, stopped the prayer and said something to him. Whatever it was, it seemed to calm him. Marwood then bound his legs. Miles was again agitated. The hangman lost his patience and handed him roughly as he refixed the rope around his neck for a third time. He then put the white cap on each of the men. He went to where the lever was located, which controlled the trapdoors. But Miles, still intent on making his case, had evidently turned his head sideways under the white cap in the direction of the journalist below. The movement caused the rope to slip down under his wrist and arm. Without warning, Marwood pulled the lever. In the instant, the three men disappeared from view. The ropes in which Pat Joyce and Pat Casey were suspended were taut and rigid and never moved. Not that of Miles. His rope continued to oscillate crazily. and This lasted close to two minutes. Marwood was furious. He went over to Miles' rope, looking down at the body of Miles, aslant the pit and not as the others hanging straight up and down. Marwood seized the rope, shaking it violently, mouthing imprecations at Miles. Meanwhile, the most disturbing groans of agony continued to come from below. Finally, as someone said, Marwood kicked Miles Joyce into eternity. The movement on the rope stopped. The necks of Pat Joyce and Pat Casey were hanging to one side, their shoulders showing that they had been broken in the nine-foot fall. In the case of Miles Joyce, his body was sideways and his head quite erect. The remains were placed each in a deal coffin. The features of the other two were calm. The face of Miles Joyce was distorted, swollen, and blackened with internal bleeding. In the inquest, which immediately followed, in accordance with the tradition, Dr. Rice, the jail surgeon, testified that Pat 
Casey and Pat Joyce had died from strangulation, but no fracture had taken pl place in Miles Joyce's case. The jury were furious and demanded that Marr would be produced to remove, to provide some explanation. The governor wisely refused to do this. The three Joyce witnesses and the approvers continued to live at a place known after the trial as the Crown Witness Depot. And it appears effectively to be a place where if you were on the equivalent of a witness protection program, uh, you, you stayed until things had at least died down. They received subsistence payments, subsistence payments. The Joyce eventually returned to the valley just before the hangings. The newspapers reported that the Lord Lieutenant had paid £500 reward to both Anthony Joyce and John Joyce and £250 to John Joyce's son, a considerable sum of money in those days. They lived under armed police guard who lived in iron huts dotted around the mountains. And there was, of course, uh, within the community a residue. And on one occasion, accompanied by the five five armed RIC men, they, they went to a licensed premises. They were beaten up, a lot of them. No prosecution followed. Tom Casey was meanwhile having difficulty with his marriage. His wife, a sister of Philbin, greatly resented Casey implicating him in the murder. Casey was despised locally. His pound a week grant paid by the police was discontinued in April 1884. The reason is unknown, though it's believed to have been stopped on some grounds of misconduct. Casey then made a fresh statement to the police. He implicated the two new individuals. He now gave them their proper names and stated that Philbin was not present. As far as Miles Joyce was concerned, he said that Miles was present at the house but did not go in to participate in the attack. That was a, a change. Around the same time, he presented himself to confession at Turmakidi Church. And it would seem that what happened thereafter was involved some element of showmanship. Um, there was at the time in existence a tomb diocesan statute which made perjury a reserved sin, normally uh, reserved for the archbishop or a delegated priest. Further, um, the penitent would have to be informed that he would have to make recompense um, by making a public confession or by taking some steps to allow uh, an investigation into what he, could, what he had done so that the people affected by his testimony could be redeemed. On August 8th, funnily enough, the Archbishop was in the chapel to confirm children. And in the middle of the service, he announced that Casey would come before them and make a public confession of his part in the Mantrasna case. The Archbishop said he was aware that there were policemen in the congregation and he urged them to take full notes and report uh, up the line. And Casey then went on the altar and publicly said that he'd sworn falsely against the four men in custody. Some reports suggest that at this juncture, he also exonerated uh, Miles Joyce. It's a little bit unclear on that. But the news spread like wildfire. 
and any lingering doubts about Miles Joyce's protestations of innocence evaporated. Clearly, Anthony Philbin's response was key. Uh, his initial response was to denounce Casey as a liar who was only confusing people. The local priest, Father Corbett, um, worked tirelessly to keep the story alive. Uh, he liaised with journalists and organised interviews. Um, Casey gave an intricate account of being leaned on by Bolton and being told that if he refused to become a witness, he'd be the fourth man to go on trial and would surely hang. Um, he went on to say that Miles Joyce had not even been at John Joyce's house. The reporter then went to Philbin's home with Casey and the priest. At first, Philbin was uncooperative. However, when Casey arrived a short time afterwards, he admitted he was not at the murder house. Again, he said that the structure of his statement had been fashioned by George Bolton. And this, in fact, was a very opportune moment to be making accusations against the state solicitor. He was under investigation at this time for allegedly embezzling £60,000 uh, uh, from his wife. And uh, he was also uh, attracting attention out of his alleged immoral relationships with servant girls. Um, Philbin said that the warder in the prison had encouraged him to talk to Bolton, that the first account he'd offered to him was dismissed as blather, and he was told that he would not be used as a witness unless he implicated others. At this point, Mr. Timothy Harrington, MP for Westmeath, entered the picture. He was a land league activist. He had gone to prison uh, and had met, had been, been imprisoned arising from these activities, and had met the Mamtrasna prisoners. And he became convinced of their innocence. And he was also a very able barrister. Uh, he was junior counsel in the, uh, for Charles Stuart Parnell in the Pigot forgeries, uh, which was about to break on the scene very, very soon. And um, he went down and he, he cross-examined or set up an examination or a cross-examination of Casey at length, which was reproduced in the form of a transcript and published as a pamphlet and distributed. Um, a brief belonging to Peter the Packer O'Brien was found in the bar room, which uh, would have been upstairs in this building, I believe. And that caused a little bit of a minor stir because on the list of all the prospective jurors, there were several with the name letter C marked out. Uh, Peter O'Brien denied that C stood for Catholic. He simply said these were names that he thought the castle should be alerted to uh, lest they wanted to make a challenge. Earl Spencer, Spencer was very exercised by the developments. He saw this as a political development, an undisguised attack on the judicial system. And remember, we're at a time where there was no court of appeal. And uh, he was very troubled by it. He took advice on it. And uh, in, I suppose, what was a forerunner, but a more efficient way of the tribunal, 
he was advised to carry out an investigation into the new material and to pronounce upon it, uh, which he did. Uh, and he, he, the archbishop who had put all the information before him and he wrote back and said, I've carried out a thorough investigation. There's nothing to this. The allegations against Mr. Bolton are outlandish and are outrageous. And in any event, the three independent witnesses who've never been uh, in any way impeached could have safely grounded the conviction. Uh, Harrington, meanwhile, wasn't prepared to let go. Um, he um, put down motions in the House of Commons. Uh, he um, got a debate going, uh, which lasted for uh, four nights in the House of Commons. And again, I suppose a measure of the interest which the case had generated on all sides of the House, the debate was very well informed as to what had happened, what the issues were. And when the Solicitor General um, described the Joyce's, that's the three independent witnesses, as three men of unblemished character, quote, without any motive, there was a chorus on the Irish benches of £2,000. The purpose of the debate was to persuade the government to set up a public inquiry. Uh, Gladstone in particular made clear his abhorrence at the suggestion that the House should in some way act as some sort of court of criminal appeal. The proceedings show that the Irish MPs regularly cheered and jeered throughout the proceedings, and many commentators felt that the prospect for success might have been higher had there been less political point scoring and the case pleaded more gently. In any event, it was defeated by 219 votes to 48. The, life, the lifers, they settled into their sentences. Twelve years on, Father McHugh wrote to the Lord Lieutenant, noting with great regret that he'd been instrumental in inducing the men to plead guilty. He added that he was not at the time as satisfied of their innocence as he is now. They faced a terrible dilemma. The Crown had represented their sentences would be commuted if they entered a plea of guilty, whereas if they went to trial and were convicted, they would be hanged. The following year, Michael Casey died. He was the first to die. It was 13 years into a sentence. Three years on, John Casey succumbed to pneumonia. The prison do doctor asked him would he like to die in an outside hospital. He replied he would leave the jail pardoned and vindicated or leave as a corpse. He was 54 years of age. In October 1902, 20 years after their incarceration, the three remaining prisoners, two Joyce brothers and the son, were released. Pa Jean was father to 10 children. His youngest son was born just after he went into prison. He'd never seen him. Pa Jean's son, Tom, was 20 years of age when sentenced and had spent the 20 years in jail with him. He was the most voluble opponent of Father McHugh when the matter of pleading guilty was raised and is believed to have harbored a deep grudge against priests thereafter. He was only one of the five prisoners. He was the only one of the five prisoners who never wrote a memorial to the Viceroy asking for early release. On the morning of their release, the three prisoners were put on a train 
from Dublin to Ballinasloe, a huge crowd of well-wishers who had heard the rumours gathered to welcome them. They saw the three grey-haired, puny and very frightened old men. So overawed were they by the crowd, they asked to be taken in a covered wagon to the cavalry barracks in Ballinrobe. They'd apparently been told in prison that they might be attacked and beaten up. They later went to a pub on the corner of Bridge Street, where they remained until sometime after midnight, and then set off to walk the 18 miles home. It rained, and the showers turned to hail. It was bright by the time they reached Mam Trasna. They marvelled as they crossed the new bridge into the village. As they reached a fork in the road, the men shook hands and went to their respective homes. Pauline had become institutionalised. Uh, he moved out of the family home. He and his son, Tom, became estranged. They did not speak. And Tom eventually emigrated to the United States. Patsy Joyce, the only person in the house who survived, was raised by the Christian brothers at Hartane Boys School. He returned to the area only once afterwards to sell cattle belonging to his father. His whereabouts thereafter are unknown. The late Mr. Justice Hardiman kicked off this series of lectures and it occurs to me looking at the themes of the lectures, they were all about very big people, very big trials, very big events. Uh, Robert Emmett, um, Roger Casement, I think, is next week. The seven to ninety-eight trials, two thousand and sixteen, in the round from a legal perspective, all big issues. This case isn't a big issue. It's, as I say, in many respects, very much the penny dreadful end of the market. After. Mr. Justice Hardiman died so suddenly. Um, I went to YouTube and he was interviewed by Patrick Gagan, again on the Robert Emmett case. And uh, it was a very interesting interview. It always was. Uh, anything he had to say was always worth listening to. But he made the point that comparisons between now and then are, serve no great purpose and are somewhat invidious because it was a different time. It was a different mores. And it would be unfair to visit our set of rules on them. That's a point that I think is very well made. But I do think that we can look at it from the perhaps the other end of the uh, binoculars. Um, for instance, there's no doubt that when the Attorney General submitted to the judge that there was no need to be concerned that the jurors had heard the trial judge endorsed the prosecution witnesses in the most positive way when he said that you couldn't but be impressed that the men had got a fair trial, that he was saying what he believed. And that really is the challenge. Not 50 years on to realise that something is very bad looking back, but to try and appreciate it at the time. And one of the interesting things about looking at Mantrasna and looking at where we are now is that the ills that have been cured have only actually been cured very recently, in modern times. And I, I use the word modern times by in living memory. I mean, it's hard to believe 
that it was only in 1975 that the jury system changed to allow women to be in the pool from which jurors were selected. And even harder to believe that when Maureen de Burka brought the case, the state defended it. And defended it inter alia on the provision in the Constitution that recognized that the woman's place in the home paid a dividend to the state and was in the interests of the common good. And the state not only made that argument, it was one of the reasons the case was won in the High Court, was on that argument. And it was a, it was a quirky thing where the 1927 Act, first of all, confined jurors to ratepayers. It didn't exclude women per se. You just had to apply, provided you were a ratepayer, that was. Uh, and you could then be in the pool. But it seems almost prehistoric here today to think that that has happened within the practicing lives of many practitioners in this room. The use of approvers has had a rejuvenation in the last while. In Northern Ireland, they had a series of supergrass trials where one accused would give evidence against 25 accused. And 24 of them, or 25 of them were actually convicted. Most of them are murder, and the sentences ran to thousands of years. 24 of them were, had the conviction set aside on, set aside on appeal. Uh, most of the other supergrass trials went the same way. It only lasted for three or four years, but it inflicted huge damage on the system. Down here, it's much better. We've had a number of uh, uh, accomplice cases. There was the Gilligan case in which one man was convicted of murder, three others for, <laughs> for, for drugs offences. We had two of the Dundons and two of their gang convicted. We had the Champers Carroll case, there were four men indicted, one was convicted, three was acquitted. We had the Maria Ora Rostas, killing, again an accomplice, the man was acquitted. But what makes all of those cases stand out is the level of disclosure which the state first of all provided and the courts reinforced by additional orders throughout the trial. But let's not forget, disclosure only came about accidentally in this jurisdiction, again in modern times after the Maguires, after the Guildfords, after the Birmingham Six, when the United Kingdom realized there was a significant problem, owned up to their mistakes, and put together a formal disclosure process. We, for the first time, put in place something similar here. It only happened in the late 1980s. And prior to that, there was an informal system where a prosecutor might say, look, this might interest you. And this, this in circumstances where someone might be on trial for murder and in the not too distant past where you would be hanged if you were convicted. And we, we all saw what had happened in the Harry Leeson case. Similarly with Martin Conley, a man who'd been tried at murder in the early 70s and convicted of manslaughter and 
was very unhappy with this conviction and persisted for years and years. And eventually, when the case came to court and the full disclosure was made, there were documents going to the heart of the prosecution case, which had never been disclosed to him. And as part of proving his case, what was it, 35 years on, the junior counsel, who are now very distinguished senior counsel, I think both of them have been former, former attorneys general, came to court and said, look, if that document had been shown to me, it's inconceivable that we wouldn't have exploited it. And ultimately, the court was satisfied to set aside the conviction on that basis. So it's only, again, in the last 20 years or so that the Criminal Procedure Act was introduced, which allowed a miscarriage of justice to be even addressed. Prior to that, it was just a void. No matter what happened, if it turned out that your conviction was wrong, the most you could get was a presidential pardon. There simply was no method or focus that you could bring to bear. And th these are all, I think, um, very important things. And I, I think, notwithstanding that I'm saying that the, the, the skill, obviously, is to highlight what's wrong now, now, and not with the benefit of 50 years further civilizing of a society. But I do actually think that we're probably in a golden age as far as the criminal trial is concerned, and as far as an accused rights are concerned, and as far as disclosure is concerned. And without going too much off script, it occurred because in the early 80s, there was a huge demographic shift, and the bar trebled, and solicitors trebled. And crudely, they had to do something. And a lot of cases got argued. And instead of having a slim IR, you've now four bulging ones. And in the case of criminal law, in the late 1980s, there was a significant increase in the fees. And, you know, I will be uh, perfectly honest about it. Uh, it attracted a better class of candidate. And if you look at the senior bar now, in my view, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about people like Paddy Gageby, who was ahead of me and who lectured me in the inns, and who was a sort of a beacon. I'm talking about the middle or younger inner bar at the moment. There is great strength in it. And they are all those people that came in in the late 90s when terms and conditions, want a better word, improved. Our terms and conditions are not improved. In fact, they're greatly disimproved. And we shall have to wait and see whether down the line there's a hidden dividend waiting to see whether that same quality is there. I don't, of course, fool myself to think that everything is great. I'm sure the system is as rotten. I'm sure parts of the system are as rotten as parts of the system always are. And certainly the uh, uh, conditions in which children were kept in St. Patrick's Institution until very recently were, were sickening. And I still think within the prison system, elements of that are still sickening. And we should be deeply ashamed that this is tolerated and uh, that nothing is done to enhance what a prison sentence is. But to return and to finish, 
with the case that's before us. I think even allowing for the fact that a different ethos prevailed, it's absolutely clear that Miles Joyce did not receive a fair trial. Um, neither did his two predecessors, but they confessed to an involvement and met the sentence of the court. Neither did the man who pleaded guilty, but I think the same could be said to apply for the four who pleaded guilty in circumstances where the choice was something pragmatic or a hangman's rope. And the government very recently recommended to the president that the president grant the late Harry Gleeson a pardon. That power is contained in Article 13.6 of the Constitution. And that recommendation issued after a, a careful consideration of the papers by my colleague Shane Murphy, who compiled a report for the consideration of the government. The system doesn't react well to criticism. It never does. It battens down the hatches. And it's not an Irish thing. It's a universal thing. And, uh, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't deal with the Nicky Kelly situation. Uh, he got convicted in circumstances where there was a serious question mark. He took a civil case. The state put every obstacle in his way. He lost his civil case, uh, as did uh, Oscar Brannock and the others. And eventually, the government gave a pardon. Um, we have a very bad history here towards facing up to problems within the system. One understands it because it's seen as a collateral attack on the system itself. Uh, you see it, I don't know if any of you have been watching in the Netflix series about making a murder. And I'm not going to comment on, on, on the outcome of the case other than to say that to see a judge refuse a 16-year-old person who, whose intelligence was clearly at the lower end of things, being represented by a lawyer who was completely incompetent and not allowing the change of the lawyer because he had supreme confidence in the system, notwithstanding that the man's uncle had served 20 years in jail for an offence he didn't commit. There was no putting the brakes on. And it is that supreme confidence which comes into, develops ultimately into supreme arrogance, which, which is when the problems really start. Um, the state has been very forthcoming in the last 15 years or so in making serious apologies to people, people who've been institutionalized, people who've been the subject of abuse, people who, to whom a duty was owed and to whom the duty was breached. And in my view, that apology can never be made loud enough or often enough. And it seems to me from having had the privilege of reading around on this subject to prepare this lecture, Miles Joyce and the other people in this case would benefit from the case being reopened and seeing even belatedly at this point whether something, even if we're only symbolic, could be done to acknowledge that's not the way to do things. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Michael L. O'Higgins, Senior Counsel, deliver his lecture on the Mam Trasna murders as part of the Green Street Lecture Series in 2016. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more of these lectures, log on to lowlibrary.ie or wherever you get your podcasts.